Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as the guest for this episode is... Pat. Thanks for joining us today, Pat. Pat was part of our scout troop when we were growing up and conveniently also likes movies. For those of you joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by KJ, and that movie is 1968's Planet of the Apes. It falls under the adventure sci-fi genres. The director was Franklin J. Schaffner. The director also directed movies such as Patton, Papillon, and The Boys from Brazil. Other popular movies in 1968 included 2001 A Space Odyssey, Rosemary's Baby, Once Upon a Time in the West, Herbie the Love Bug, of course, uh, The Odd Couple, and Night of the Living Dead. Just an interesting little tidbit. There happened to be a lot of musicals that year, too. Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Funny Girl, Yellow Submarine, and Oliver. KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell us a little bit about this movie, not like we don't know it from a plethora of pop culture references, and why you brought it to us today. Planet of the Apes, classic movie. Uh, It stars Charleston Heston, who goes on a journey into space and crashes on an unknown planet. On this planet, it's apes that rule and humans are hunted. He gets captured by the apes, stands trial by the apes, and eventually tries to prove that humans are just as intelligent as the apes. Eventually, Charleston Heston figures out, this is a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Planet of the Apes, but eventually... any reference. (laughs) Any Planet of the Apes reference in their life, but... (laughs) Um, eventually, Charleston Heston figures out that the planet he is on is not an unknown planet, but is indeed the Earth he left from hundreds of years in the future. The reason I brought this movie today starts on a trip my wife and I took to Ecuador. My wife is in Peace Corps, and she lived in the jungle of Ecuador, so we went back to visit, and I was in the jungles of Ecuador for a week, um, which I highly recommend. It's like visiting Jurassic Park. And I came home... And I had the worst fever I ever had in my life. It was probably somewhere around 99.1 degrees. I'm a wuss when it comes to getting sick. So I stayed home from work and I turned on the TV and on came a documentary about Planet of the Apes. And I was fascinated that the first five Planet of the Apes movies make a time loop. And I just, I couldn't get this out of my mind. So years later, Planet of the Apes was on HBO Go or HBO Now, whatever. Um, And I sat and I watched the five movies and these were not good movies. There's some cinematography that's good, but um, Charleston Heston is an actor who, well, it just, the acting's not good. The plot doesn't really make that much sense. It's very ham fisted with what it's trying to say. And I don't know that it says it that well. But these movies are like comfort food to me. Anytime that I'm feeling like I just want to sit and do nothing, I turn to a Planet of the Apes movie, and I love them. Tom, do you have any history with this movie? I don't. This is the first time I've seen the original Planet of the Apes. I saw the Tim Burton remake, I think, in theaters, and I've seen one of the new strains of of the Planet of the Apes, the more recent um, CGI doctored one. I, I don't even know which 
new one I've seen. Of the original five, this is the only one I've seen, and I've only seen it for this podcast. I was shocked how much I enjoyed this. Um, I, I actually I apparently seemed to like it more than KJ <laughs> did because I, I, I found um, a lot of the, the filmmaking, the filmmakers to be really competent. I think the story, at least in this single iteration, uh, uh, makes a lot of sense and is saying something, I think, fairly complex, albeit kind of grounded in the 19, 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, I was really surprised by the pacing. I thought it was very interesting. Um, I think the music, the score to this is gorgeous. I think it's an, an incredible score. And, um, and it's also kind of, you know, despite its, I do think it, it has some sophistication to it, but in spite of that, it's still very fun. It's a really, really enjoyable movie to watch. Um, I mean, you compare it to like another science fiction movie that's quote unquote saying something like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I find like needles in my eye trying to get through that, that damn movie. I mean, it's like eight hours long and you know, it's about a space baby. I, I think this movie is about three times as fun and is smarter than anything Kubrick's done. Okay, um, this is actually the first time that I've seen this movie in its entirety. I think through the years, just flipping through cable, I've seen bits and pieces, and it really didn't make sense to me. Um, I definitely stand in Tom's camp where I thoroughly enjoyed watching this. And what was really interesting is I've known just from pop culture, they've referenced this movie like all over the place. I can't even keep track of how many references. So I felt like I had already seen the movie, <laughs> even though I had not. And this helped fill in the blanks. And I think I was pleasantly surprised because usually when you know a lot about a movie, you don't enjoy it as much. This one, I knew a lot and I still liked it. I can't speak for the plethora of movies that come after it in the sequel. And I think that maybe I, I, I imagine there's some degradation of quality if you want to start off at Planet of the Apes being the pinnacle of quality of that franchise. But I, I did enjoy it. And to uh, also what Tom was saying, I actually saw the Mark Wahlberg, Tim Burton directed one first. And I saw the more recent ones. I'm trying to think if I saw the last of the recent trilogy. I know I definitely saw Rise and Dawn. I'm not sure if I saw the last one, but uh, those have a different feel uh, completely because a lot of them are talking about how they get to that point. So this one, we were thrown into the setting. And even though I knew the spoiler at the end, it was still kind of cool. Like, when are they going to find out? When are they going to? Oh, they only find out right at that end. Okay. Okay. So, and funny enough, one of the future episodes we're going to be talking about, Spaceballs, has a lot of direct references to this movie, especially the end sequence. So, uh, that's my familiarity. And I'm going to turn it over to our, our guest, Pat, to see if he has any uh, history with this movie and any of his initial thoughts. Uh, thanks, Nick. So, I do. My, my uh, history takes me back to being a little kid where uh, Saturday afternoons would be a time that if it was rainy outside, if, if sports were canceled, there was nothing going on. You'd go to Channel 5 and you'd find Planet of the Apes or one of the versions being played for the uh, Saturday afternoon movie. And it's really funny about that because when I was talking with KJ about it, it, it took me back to say, you know, 
even even now i don't say fox i don't say you know i say channel five because that was way back when with the dials you didn't <laughs> even have any so ah, i could just tune the channel five out of the six channels that we had available you could find planet of the apes on a saturday morning <laughs> so but it's it's interesting about it because when it when i was a kid watching it either watching it halfway through or watching it from the beginning and you know not really having a sense of of adult eyes about it seeing it again and, and watching it again now uh, in terms of being an adult i i totally agree with with tom about you know th there are such nuanced messages that that are so complex in it which is really interesting and i really enjoyed it so uh yeah the 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 classic scene at the end uh the classic lines that the things that are quoted over and over again i, I just I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Sounds good, Pat. Now, for one of the most important parts of our episode, we ask all our guests a critical item. What would be the perfect snack to enjoy while watching this movie? Well, in my opinion, really not only for this movie, but for any movie, my go-to movie snack is popcorn and plain M&Ms. And I actually have a strategy that I like to use in terms of that. that so in order to be able to, you, you can't put the M&Ms in first, but you do have to find a balance of flavor within your mouth at the same time. So what I like to do is take maybe four or five popped kernels of popcorn, put them in, chew two or three times, then take two M&Ms and just drop them in and then mix them all up, and it winds up being an, a, a, a perfect blend of uh, flavor. It's a flavor extravaganza in your mouth. So for when watch, watching a movie, that, that is my go-to snack. So the ratio is four popcorn. Four to, slightly chewed yeah, popcorn. Slightly four chewed. Slightly, exactly right, yeah, to two M&Ms. So we're, okay. we're, we're looking at anywhere from a two to a 2.5 to one ratio okay. by volume. popcorn to m &M. <laughs> and can, <laughs> and can anyone or anything pre-chew the popcorn or do you insist on doing it yourself? <laughs> I, I, I insist on doing it myself, but other people might have a different preference. So, we have like a mama a bird situation here. <laughs> Do you mind chewing this popcorn and spitting it into my mouth? It's, well, I'm just trying to find activities for couples. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Sharing is caring. <laughs> that is great. Okay, well, I, I, I'm glad there was, it wasn't just the ingredients, but there was actually a formula to maximize enjoyment for this one. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, on that note, KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you for Movie Quiz. It's time for Movie Quiz. I have some categories prepared for you. However, we're going to change things up this episode, and we're going to try to use buzzers to buzz in and answer questions. So we're not going to be locking in. We're going to be buzzing in. Um, for round one, questions will be worth one point. And here are the categories. See no evil speak no evil, and hear no evil. So Pat, which category would you like to start with? Let's start off with see no evil. And before we begin, let's just test all of our buzzers. So Pat, can we hear your buzzer? <laughs> <laughs> let's try that again. Awesome. Yeah, let's, let's hear that again, Pat. Okay. <laughs> nice. And Tom? Cool. And oh, Nick? Nice. Excellent. It's time for question one. In Planet of the Apes, Taylor is captured and his throat is hurt, so he can't speak. So there's a scene where he's with 
Kira and Cornelius, who are scientific apes on Planet of the Apes. What does Taylor use to convince Cornelius of flight? <laughs> Pat? I, he uses a paper airplane. Excellent. Yes, he uses a paper airplane. I thought it was pretty strange some of the technology that the apes were able to get and some that they were not, right? They have paper and they have lots of paper, paper all over the place. Nobody has dropped a piece of paper and saw it float like, down. Seriously. No, I... <laughs> yep. So one of the things that, that I always laugh about it is, is the idea that, that basically almost all of the scenes you, you are, you are reminded that this is, um, this is an advanced slash primitive society that you're dealing with. Right, so they they have stone slabs for tables. They they have uh, wicker cages, and but they at the same time can figure out how to make an M1 <laughs> as a rifle. <laughs> so they're they're on horseback. They have these advanced semi-automatic <laughs> weapons, but they have nothing else that's actually considered to be advanced, other than the knowledge from the the Ministry of Science and you know all of these different things. So. It really is a, a funny, technologically, uh, just, uh, I can't even think of a word for it because it's, there, there's anachronisms that are built, built in. And at the same time, you know, even when they're going to do the surgeries and you see the tools that, that, are, that are on the table uh, and you're like, oh, these are all rudimentary tools, but some of them are steel. And obviously they have to be able to forge steel. So where are these places that they're forging steel <laughs> to make the M1s especially? <laughs> To that point, too, I find it interesting as well on what technology they can't do based on what they already have. So when they start talking about the paper airplane specifically, the one guy is like, flight is impossible. Like, it's just, it, we can't even talk about it, you know? Like, it was against their religion, <laughs> you know, to talk about flight. Yeah, and yet, meanwhile, they have guns, and then they have, like, rope nets. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's sort of like their uh, the technology, their relationship to technology is circumscribed by their their religious devotion. The idea being, you know, it's it's the cautionary tale of you know too much technology leads to the bomb, right? You know, it's another Cold War movie we're doing, um, and and so that's kind of the revelation at the end is that uh, we we want to limit the amount of technology we have, but in order for the movie to be more enjoyable, we need the rifles. <laughs> so <laughs> they just sort of, when it's more entertaining, you throw that out and bring in the rifle, um, which I sort of like, because you could kind of have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> well, I think, and not to uh, refer too much to movies outside of this specific Planet of the Apes, but some of the more modern ones, their timeline was closer to when they evolved from humans. So they have... Uh, guns and firearms and weaponry that was created by the humans. Whereas this one, we're taking a 2000 year gap. So I can't even say they've had those guns hidden for 2000 years. So they, to Pat's point, had to actually create these because I don't think they would have lasted that long. But the relationship to, to technology is, is interesting in the sense that it's a theme of the movie, right? It's a movie about limiting technology, which at first, the, the tonal shift is interesting because at first you, you think it's kind of horrible or even horrific that, you know, he crumbles the airplane. At one point, for the two people who are listening to this who haven't seen the film, um, at, at one point they make a paper airplane 
and Dr. Sayas sees it uh, and he crumbles it up. He just, he picks it up, crushes it. And it, you know, it's this, this idea that we have to stop people now from, from developing things before it gets out of hand. It's this kind of like conservative theocratic way of looking at the world. Um, yeah, I was going to say Dr. Zayas also was on to him actually being intelligent. He actually scribbled out when he was trying to, uh, uh, when Charlton Heston's character was trying to write a message in the sand. I can He's, write. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he scribbles that out. And his official title, Dr. Uh, Zayas, is the leading member of the Ape National Assembly, Minister of Science, and also Chief Defender of the Faith. So there's that dichotomy right there. Head of science and religion. But that wouldn't be a dichotomy in most of history. But in his society. Yeah. That's an enlightenment idea. Is that yes. like these yeah. two things go It wasn't true in our society. Yeah. And, and he, he goes on to say that there, there is the marriage of science and religion, which he eventually calls true science. You know, that, that, that whole idea of, of being the keeper of the faith, as well as the minister of science, that, you know, we... He's, he's using both to explain the world. And this is actually, Tom, what you're talking about, about this really is the system of checks and balances in terms of ensuring that we don't repeat the history that led to the, the nuclear annihilation or, or, or the, uh, the, of, of the Earth. But the other thing about that, too, what's really funny is, is thinking about it, because I, I thought about the paper airplane scene a lot and the idea that how how were they not familiar with things are birds not there it, are, do they not have like the idea like flights impossible well a bird is flying overhead for right now but you actually don't see any birds in oh. any scenes when you look at that like and you're like huh that's really interesting i wonder if that's actually a, a component part of that uh, that that's associated with, but why wouldn't birds have survived? So if we're at the level of primates, what what happened to the birds? <laughs> yeah, what happened to the birds? They and went to a different planet, planet of the birds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how are they designing the bullets? Because those are rifles. They're not exactly muskets. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some aerodynamics. I mean, <laughs> to, to, to my prior point that I'm going to try to contradict right now just for the fun of it, um, maybe the molds and the assembly and all that was still there, but you're right. Their, their, their actual furniture and everything they use is very primitive. It's stone-based, so that's really a stretch you know, to mm-hmm. say that the, the molds were left and all of that, but they figured it out. That's the one thing they figured out. So this movie is based on a book, which I have not read, but I've heard that in the book, the apes are an advanced technological society. They are mm-hmm. 2,000 years ahead of us, but due uh, to budget reasons, the movie had to make them primitive. So it could just be that they couldn't afford to fully realize the book, and that's why we have this dichotomy as well. But it works. It works so yeah. well in yeah. the movie. It really does. KJ, that was a great question. What do you have for us next? All right. Um, Tom, why don't you pick the next category, either speak no evil or hear no evil. Speak no evil. Speak no evil. All right, everybody got their buzzers ready? Here we go. Speak no evil. It's time for question two. This is a question and a bonus question. So I'm going to ask the question, then I'm going to ask the bonus question. When do we buzz in? (laughs) Then as soon as I'm done with the bonus question, that's when you buzz in. What are the first words the apes hear from humans? And the bonus question, 
what are the first words we hear the apes speak? Tom? Get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape. <laughs> Excellent, yes. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty apes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So that, that's good for the point. Um, what, what was the bonus question again? <laughs> <laughs> bonus question. What are the first words we hear the ape speak? Oh, we hear them um, smile. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, no flight, but cameras. Sure. You know, after a battle, you got to take a picture with your buddies. They have cameras. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Wasn't it an old-timey camera, though? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that line, uh, take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty apes, that's an iconic, iconic line. Wow. And this movie has infiltrated so much pop culture. So My many. favorite is the Simpsons episode, the musical. Oh, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. I love you, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I totally agree. Actually, I, I, I thought of that's one of my favorite episodes of the Simpsons, too, with uh, can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious about that episode but i totally agree that that uh one one of the i already mentioned it kind of in the intro but one of the earliest um that i can think of was when i watched Spaceballs when i was younger because i knew i actually knew of planet of the apes i never had seen it and there's uh quite a lot there's actually multiple uh, planet of the apes references in Spaceballs, but the ending is a big one where where they go on the beach and they see the the people from Spaceballs on their beach, and mm-hmm. and you see the uh, well, it's not the Statue of Liberty, it's the wreckage of their spaceship that turned into <laughs> the Mega Maid, Mega and, and it looks like the head of the Statue of Liberty and the top of her um, uh, vacuum cleaner, <laughs> and he goes, oh, those are Spaceballs. Well, there goes the planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as they ride, as the apes ride up on their horses. I think oh. there was also a bunch. Uh, I don't think you guys watched it as much as I did, but Futurama also had a bunch, a bunch of Planet of the Apes references. But it's, I mean, it's everything. There's so many references to Planet of the Apes. In oh, pop there culture. is. Yeah. The uh, one of the funny things that um, I found is on the if you buy the DVD now, there's a bunch of different ones. But the leading DVD on Amazon, if you were to buy it now, the cover is the Statue of Liberty. You get spoilers. Right from the beginning, before you even take the disc out of the box. Yeah. So, I think at this point they just know everybody knows it. So it's mm-hmm. not like yeah. it's like Darth Vader, I am your father. Mm-hmm. Like there's people who have, believe it or not, there's some out there who still have not seen Star Wars and they still know that connection. Yeah, exactly right. With the T-shirts that are out there that just say, "I am your father." Mm-hmm. I have one. My wife got it when I <laughs> for, for for me for and, Christmas. And everybody knows the pop culture reference there. Yeah. Exactly right. And then even with the idea that that um, all of the quotes there there are some the the the, the damn you all the hell quote at yeah. the end. I mean when when you hear that, uh, one of the things that that I thought was really interesting from what I was reading is that. Charlton Heston's voice is, is 100% an iconic voice in terms of the way that he delivers and that, that gravelly voice that he had. But actually, part of the tri- trivia that I was reading through is that he had the flu at the time during the filming. <laughs> and they thought rather than waiting for him to get better, 
his gravelly voice, the director found very attractive in terms of the character. So, so the idea of, of having him in there be just miserable in terms of being really sick, uh, that, that voice then becomes such a, a memoir to, to that time as well as to, you know, that, that just the delivery of those lines. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's interesting. It's, um, what's so nice about pop culture maybe versus some other types of culture is that when it works, sometimes it's due to circumstances that no one planned. And so you get something you really uh, adore that just came out of accident and response to accident. But yeah, with what's for me the the kind of the pop culture afterlives of this film um, have made the movie more than the movie, right? Because I haven't seen this movie, but I you know know the entire plot. Um, I know I knew who Doctor Say like I knew the name Doctor Sayas even before seeing this movie. So what, what makes it, what my initial response was living in that afterlife and returning to the initial film was those first 30 minutes where you see nothing but those three men um, and the, kind of the slow pace as they're crossing this, this desert that I think was filmed in Utah uh, is, is kind of incredible because the movie has um, a really different tone than the kind of the bubblegum pop expectation that's been set up. Um, you know, especially like uh, uh, the, the one, I think Landon's his name, who sets up the American flag and you have the cackling laughter of Charlton Heston. It feels like it lasts 80 minutes or something, but you know, uh, that was that kind of, um, that kind of, you know, laughing at society or the bit of the middle finger to like the nation state. I didn't expect that at all. And I, I thought it was pretty interesting. This is totally a tangent, but when they're going through that um, a remote scene and they finally find a plant, why did they have to rip it out of the ground? I, I t- why couldn't they just leave it? Oh, we have one bit of life. Let's extinguish it. <laughs> I totally agree with you, Nick. I totally agree with that. I thought that was hilarious. Like, look, life, let's rip it out. <laughs> Enough of that. But it makes there sense. There must be more. <laughs> right? In, in, the, in the fullness of the movie, that makes sense. Yes. Yes, this it does. Is, you know, it ends up, this is why we're scared of these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> no, do this. It makes sense, but in the That's moment. Why we need to castrate them. In, in the moment, I'm just like, that poor plant. He finally made it. <laughs> You're right, right though. Yeah. That's right. Well, and, and, and even with that, why, why would they pull it out of the ground? They, they've already experience their ship sinking so they can't get back they there's nobody that's going to come and get them so it wouldn't even be that they're taking a sample for posterity to bring back to earth there's there's no reason to rip that plant out of the ground yeah dr zayas was right i I think it's also like you're crossing a desert you have no idea if you're going to get to food and you see something that's evidence that there's at least water somewhere and it's kind of like oh god great Yes, you know, we're, we might be saved. More of, a, more of an expression of enthusiasm than <laughs> rationale. All right, final category, hear no evil, is mislabeled. I just wanted that, hear, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. <laughs> it should really be called The Crew. It's time for question three. Taylor had a few companions with him. Um, one died in transit. And he had two other companions who are Landon and Dodge. What happened to each of Taylor's companions after the attack of the apes? What was their ultimate fate? 
Wow. We had uh, very close buzzers going on there. I'm going to give it a pat. All right. So uh, Dodge wound up uh, getting shot and eventually stuffed uh, in a museum, uh, it, w- walking through the, the science, uh, the, the laboratory or the muse- whatever it was, the archaeological area where you, see the st- where you see the stuffed body of Dodge and then landed and got a lobotomy. So uh, when, when you look at the, big, at the big scar where he's been lobotomized and, and Taylor has a, uh, a big freak out moment associated with, with that, knowing then, recognizing that with a threat of experimental brain surgery on Taylor too, that, that's gonna be his fate as well. Exactly, point goes to Pat. So how did you guys feel about the ape's treatment of the humans? AJ, I didn't like it. Didn't like it one bit. It's upsetting. I mean, it's designed to be upsetting. And especially since Charlton Heston is going to be castrated. That ends up inspiring him to run away. It would inspire me too. But, uh, you know, that, that's what gets him going, is that he's going to be castrated. He's going to be, we see that they lobotomize people. And it's extremely upsetting. And, and you understand why. And it becomes incredibly frustrating when you realize Dr. Sayas is also covering up evidence that these people are, are sentient, that they're um, not sentient, excuse me, self-aware. They're intelligent and they're rational. The reason for this, we don't, again, don't get till the end, like why he's doing it. It seems to be a, a kind of Galileo situation where they're putting, they're sticking Galileo in his house because he's contradicting the church. And it seems to be the same case with, with Taylor. He's contra- Taylor and um, Kim Hunter's character, whose name I can't remember. Uh, they're, they're contradicting the church and therefore they need to be contained. And it turns out, you know, they need to be contained because they're actual threats. Well, and, and, and I think I, I agree with you, Tom, with, with that thinking about that at the time too, really around the same time is the rise of PETA, right? P, P, people for the ethical treatment of animals. And, and with, with that, there, there were some major research studies that were going on at the time um, utilizing primates that, that were um, hor- horrific in, in many ways, where they, they, would, they would allow the, these primates to, they, they would clip the sensory nerves to the primates' extremities and then see what would basically happen to them, where, where certain, actually, interestingly enough, cert- certain advances in terms of how we handle some neurological diseases came from those studies. But the, the key point about that was it, it was, it was the issue related to how we're treating the animals that, that became the biggest hallmark of the PETA movement. And I think right around that, that, that time, when we look at that with the idea of treating, as Tom was saying, um, humans in this context as non-self-aware, just like we were treating the primates at the time too, brings about that opportunity to say, wait a minute, maybe there's more to, maybe there's more that we need to consider. And, and I think that that's definitely what Dr. Zira and, and, Corn, and Cornelius were, were, were getting towards. And that was the antithesis of what Dr. Zayas really wanted because he knew that that would be the, that was gonna break down the dam of protection associated with all of the information that was being held, held back. And, and it speaks to, uh, I think this, the, the, the recognition of, of what PETA would be concerned about that you're bringing up speaks to also the concerns and, and limits of science as 
an independent discourse or science separated from ethical concerns or from um, kind of policy shaping, right? This idea of, of science as being divided from religion, therefore it is good, right? And, and a lot of us, we, the post-Enlightenment few, see this division between uh, religion and science as this great positive that allows science to do what it needs to do um, and, and it allows religion to provide whatever services it provides to people. But that prevents the containment of scientific discourse or the application of scientific discourse and those kind of ethical discussions in regards to it. And while the movie initially seems to um, kind of have this, this enlightenment scold about the merger of science and religion, kind of looking back on the Middle Ages and going, look how dumb those people were for doing that. I think by the end of the movie, um, even though it's probably not embracing like a scholastic worldview, it, it isn't taking on the enlightenment worldview of science as, um, as the torch that leads us into the future. Right, I think the movie is rejecting both of those things firmly. Okay, well, KJ, uh, so far round one was quite enjoyable. We got to take a quick moment for a break. And during that time, I'm going to go check my buzzer to make sure it's working. Okay, be right back. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of... Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of... The podcast in which a group of... The podcast in which a group of... B-side. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website or YouTube channel to hear more about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. To accompany this episode, there's a quick two-minute B-Side that discusses all five of the original Planet of the Apes. Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com or our YouTube channel to hear more on the B-side. And we're back. KJ, start us up for round two. All right. Going into round two, Tom and Pat are tied with two points each, but it's still anybody's game because in round two, each of these questions is worth two points. We will again be buzzing in. And here are your categories. An ape is still an ape by any other name. Minister of Science and Chief Defender of the Faith. Looking to the future or the past? Nick, which category would you like to start with? I'm going to start with Minister of Science and Chief Defender of the Faith. Please be Dr. Zayas. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody have their buzzers ready? I checked it. It should All be right. working. You want to try it again, Nick? Let's see it. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, what's the answer? No, I'm just kidding. All right. So. <laughs> what's the question? <laughs> it's time for question four. What is the irrefutable evidence that apes evolved from humans? <laughs> this one goes to Nick. All right. I finally get to buzz in. The irrefutable evidence is that when they're exploring the cave in the forbidden zone, that they find a doll, a human doll, and the doll actually was made so that it could speak. Why would an ape create a human doll that could speak? Exactly. But I thought that was great, by the way, too. Yeah. Irrefutable evidence. I I wasn't sure how they were going to do it, but that is a a great way to do it. 
Um, and we've talked quite a bit about science versus religion on this podcast. Um, but certainly in the planet of the apes, they are one and the same and have to feed off each other. I actually thought that was really smart as well. When I was watching the movie, I just thought that was a really cool way. They're like, oh, yeah, it's a doll. They're, they're humans and all. But the fact that they're like, why would it speak? I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually pretty well done. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you, Nick. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that's one of the things, even with the lines, when I, when I think about even them filming that scene and the line is simply, why would, why would ape, apes make a doll that talks you know, or that, that speaks? And thinking about that dot, dot, dot between that speaks and how Charlton Heston, why would <laughs> apes make a doll that speaks? <laughs> 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 that whole thing of the delivery of that yeah. is just so classic. But again, that, that, that whole sense of, of uh, what, what Tom was talking about before, where the marriage of science and religion becomes such a such an interesting conundrum because you you have that sense of inquiry being tethered to what is considered to be a mystery you know so so you have that 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 sense of saying well we don't ask those questions because that represents part of the mystery that we're in the book which says we can't ask those types of questions but if we find things that lead us to potential answers to the questions that we're not supposed to to ask what do we do with that then you know, and, and, and so that, that really is such an interesting part of that scene where, where things start to unfold, where, you know, there's some, something on the horizon that now is getting bigger and bigger that's coming. Something's going to be revealed even bigger with regards to this. So very interesting. I also liked in that scene where this so-called primitive human became this advanced archaeologist and they have all these artifacts and he's piecing it together. Oh, well, this guy had bad teeth and this guy, you know, like it was really cool how and 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 then dr zayas is trying to dismiss everything he says meanwhile he's like putting things together that they didn't even know what they were so that was really a cool scene yeah it's the difference between kind of rational knowledge and empirical knowledge you know they they the, the theocratic society of the apes is based upon revelation and rationality you have a few books like 27 books i think that tell you truths tell you axiomatic truths and then you ration from those truths to conclusions, as opposed to like looking at the world and seeing what's there. They're not interested in looking at the world and seeing what's there, in part because they're told not to, in part we learn because it's actually very dangerous to do that, um, and legitimately dangerous. To the same point of what I just said about going through the archaeological thing, I don't think I would know if I saw like um, uh, a pacemaker or something just sitting on the floor because he's like, yeah, this was meant for his heart. And I was like, uh, I wouldn't have even known that. Yeah. It must be the air there. It just preserves everything. Yeah. It must be a lot of salt in there. <laughs> and and it's the, the other thing that's, that's really in, in, interesting about that, just from, from, from that point, is think about Think about the tools and the technology that we have from, from the span of 1968 to now. And the thought that it seemed to be that 1968 was somewhat frozen in time to allow Charlton Heston to go through and piece those things together. And the advances that we've had in, in the almost 50 years since, really the 50 years since that movie, 52, right? So, so the, the idea that there would be things that Charlton Heston wouldn't recognize at all. Thinking about like find, finding a, a cell phone 
Now, compared, there were no cell phones then, so there were rotary phones. So the idea that, that it was convenient that he just happened upon the ability to piece together things that were in his contemporary time, but if it had been at the pace of techno technological advancement, that even in the, from the 1968 to 1988, he had a gigantic spike in terms of, of the things that were going on with the computer, with all, all this. So it's amazing that it just happened to be serendipitously, they found a, a spot that he knew about <laughs> that had a talking doll. <laughs> you know what? I don't, I don't know if they intended this, if this was by design or that was just the things that was around when they made this movie. But that implies that the world went to hell shortly after they took off. Exactly. Now, again, I don't know the book or the source material, but that could also be interpreted that way. Or this was an old dig site that was more remote. But... Mm. The thought would be to me, because he was just riding down the beach and we see the Statue of Liberty, that this was probably in the New York metro area to some degree, more advanced than some other places. So my thought might be that it actually, the world did go to hell shortly after they took off. Mm -hmm. Just a thought. Yeah, it's, it's a, another Cold War movie, right? It's, it, yeah. Eventually they blow it up. And the they is... Um, well, it, it doesn't need to be filled in, but we imaginatively know it's USSR, USA. I also really liked um, comparing this to the paper airplane. He throws the paper airplane and Kira and Cornelius step back like, oh my goodness. They hear the doll and they're like, yeah, recorded audio? What's the big deal? <laughs> totally got that. <laughs> right, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the movie does what it needs to do to entertain you. We won't, yeah. we won't say it's always coherent, because it isn't, <laughs> but it's fun. Oh, yeah. Super. Well, it's supposed to be a cinematic masterpiece. We have to have it under a, a, micro, a microscope, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. But even, even, like, great movie, you know, like, great art, like Hamlet or something like that, a lot of times it's not coherent. Like, who cares? Mm -hmm. Who gives a... Well, it does, it, it does have wonderful lines, and I wish I had uh, Pat's better uh, Charlton Heston impression. You maniacs, you blew it up. Ah, damn you. God damn you all to hell. Like, that's a quality line in this movie. That's exactly right. That, that is the, that's the quintessential line. I mean, that, 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 that is absolutely my, my, my other favorite line is, is when he's getting sprayed by the hose. And he's screaming, it's a madhouse, a madhouse. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's what I want to answer. Anytime that I get into a, a, a situation that I, I, I might, you know, be, be somewhat frustrated with, that's what I'm going to say from now on. It's a madhouse. <laughs> it's a madhouse. It, it, it escalates quickly. <laughs> there are two remaining categories are an ape is still an ape by any other name and looking to the future or the past? Tom? Um, let me do an ape is still an ape by any other name. It's time for question five. What do they call Taylor before they know his name is Taylor? Oh. <laughs> Tom? I had to win. Yeah, <laughs> I hit it three times before anyone else. <laughs> they call him Bright Eyes. Yes, exactly. So... Yeah, I'm kind of interested in, um, so I, was, I don't know, I'll say this. I'm kind of interested in what Charlton Heston's character, Taylor, his kind of arc of development. 
like where he starts, what is, what is his worldview when he starts the movie? And what's his worldview when he's literally pounding sand at the end of the picture? <laughs> I'm gonna, cause I, I, when I was watching initially, like I watched it once through and I started again this morning, but I had to, you know, go do this podcast with you fools. Uh, and uh, and in, in the beginning, I thought it was like, he's really nihilistic. I thought he was like, every, nothing matters. America. <laughs> but he's kind of like, I want there to be something better than human beings. That's why I went on this voyage. Um, I want there to be something better out there in the world. I, at the end of the movie, I kind of feel like what he discovers is there isn't. <laughs> that, that everything is kind of, that everything is crap, that there is nothing sort of redeemable about anyone in his adventure, um, especially nothing redeemable about himself. And I, I was kind of curious if people came to that, that conclusion or if you had different conclusions. The only thing that I saw that was kind of out of character or let's call it an evolution, which is appropriate for this movie, is there was a little of a chink in his armor when it came to the female uh, human that was also in the jail. Nova. He did, yeah, he did seem to care for her and he could have left her behind because really she was inessential to his escape. But that's the only like development arc I really saw that he kind of took like, and it was it was more of um, what am I trying to say? Not ownership is completely the wrong word, but he took her as um, his responsibility to care for, and I think that was something he may not have done for a fellow human earlier in his trip because he was just really poking fun at everyone. He thought other people were you know self serving, and I, that's the only thing that I saw that was part of that, his personal journey, that he may not, you know, he seemed like more of a loner before that. I, I would definitely agree with that, Nick. So, so I, and, and, and that, that, that nihilistic stance in the beginning of, about um, condemning the things of man, you know, and, 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 and wanting to go further makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think with that too, that is the sense that I get from, from the, from Dr. Zayas in the end, that, that you know, when uh, when uh, Dr. Zayas is asked, what is he going to find, you know, and 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 you say, you know, what is it in terms of of going going out into a world that he doesn't even know where he what like what I what I wonder about that when 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 Dr. Zayas says I've been waiting, I've whatever he says I've been waiting for you to come, you know, this I've 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 been waiting for the day that you would come. Here is, is that is there a sense even in the books that doc, that Dr. Zayas is is um, has and obviously they they read a passage out of it where you know man is the is the is is the devil you know the, the idea that 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 he, he kills his brother for for his land blah 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 you know but but you wonder about that where you know what good did Dr. Zayas finally see in Taylor I I. Don't. I mean, my, my reading of Taylor isn't that he's nihilistic at the beginning. My reading is that he's more romantic. Mm. Um, he, he, dismisses, he dismisses much of what humans have quote unquote accomplished, right? But he still thinks there's something better out there. Mm. I think in the end of the movie, he realizes there isn't, right? Or mm. there isn't for him, which means, you know, all, all possibilities or all hopes are, are kind of canceled, which isn't nihilism proper, but it's, it's close enough for government work. Um, I, I think what, what Zayas realizes is that 
um, you know, you must abandon hope or you're going to be forced to abandon hope. There is no way forward um, because this honestly is your responsibility or your species responsibility is that you are the locust which destroys. Um, Wherever you go, meaninglessness comes with you. Well said. KJ, Uh, I think we have one left. Tom has four points. Nick and Pat are tied with two. Let's make things interesting and make this last question worth three points. So it is anybody's game. It's time for question six. What does Dr. Zayas say Taylor will find after he lets him go at the end of the movie? (laughs) That was clearly Pat. (laughs) Pat? His destiny. Exactly. So a lot of this movie, I I agree with Tom that the pacing was very strange. We kind of get to the climax of the movie and they're kind of like, oh, one more thing. And probably the most important scene in the movie is this epilogue. One of the things that I that I think is really interesting about that are the are the assumptions that 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 need to be made about what his destiny really is from from Dr. Zayas's standpoint. And it really is an interesting thing to consider when we when we go go into the time period 1968 we hadn't even landed on the moon yet so the the idea that is is interplanetary tra- travel even a possibility for us at the time never mind interstellar travel because in the book they travel to Betelgeuse I think it is so so they 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 they're meant to travel very far but but here the the assumption is Dr. Zayas knows that Taylor is human from birth. The idea that Taylor then winds up finding out that he never left home to begin with. This is the Wizard of Oz moment, you know? So the idea that it's, it's in my own backyard. I've been in my own backyard the whole time, you know? So, so this, this, this whole idea that what in the beginning were they, were they traveling through? What, what do we see them traveling through at the speed of light, you know, and, and, and now we get into the situation of saying, well, Dr. Zayas knows this, Taylor doesn't know this, but when he encounters the Statue of Liberty, the assumption is, of course, he would know what the Statue of Liberty is. Uh, but if he's from another planet, how would he? Talking about destiny, and this is kind of looking at it from a, a different angle. Um, I'm going to start this off by reading that favorite quote of mine that he says when he reads the scroll comparing like when they're on the beach and this is this is his opinion of man or his outward opinion of man and this is from that scroll beware the beast man for he is the devil's pawn alone among god's primates he kills for sport or lust or greed yea he will murder his brother to possess his brother's lands let him not breed in great numbers for he will make a desert of his home and yours shun him drive him back into his jungle lair for he is the harbinger of death now the reason i bring this up is he has a certain amount of respect for um charlton heston's character but is he also sending him is this more of a darwinism uh survival of the fittest what is his destiny yes his destiny is to understand the reality the truth but does he care about his end result and keep in mind my framework is just this movie i know there's what four movies to follow and i know there's a trajectory so i'm just saying in this if he's so afraid of this guy yes he wants him to be shocked and hurt by this but does he care about his overall survival it would be like caring about the survival of locusts 
right? You know, that I, I, or kind of contemplating the destiny of a locust. I mean, if you're a locust, you don't, you know, you are eating and procreating. You don't notice that there's this other dimension that's being ruined by your presence. Um, I, I think it's that kind of, that kind of, obs- you know, that, that sort of self-reflection that goes on when he sees the, the Statue of Liberty. I think that's his destiny, um, is, is to be able to realize what he is. I'm talking about from uh, Dr. Zayas's perspective. Oh, okay. uh, is he sending him out to his death? That's what I'm trying to say, because does he think that there's, he'll have this, it'll hurt him, and then he'll be out there, and then there's nothing to survive out there because that's the forbidden wastelands? I just, yeah, I don't think he cares. I mean, that's I think what I'm saying. Yeah, I think once, I think from Zayas's perspective, once Taylor knows the truth, Taylor is not going to be a threat anymore. That's my take, because my whole thing here when we're using the word destiny, usually that's almost used in, in most things as a positive term. <laughs> And in this case, his destiny was to learn the truth. But if, in my opinion, if, if, if Dr. Zayas thought he was still a threat, he wouldn't have let him come to that truth. He would have marched him up and said, hey, here it is, and we're going to lock you up or we're going to still dispose of you. The fact that he let him go there, in my opinion, feels like he thought he was done for. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I, I, I think that it's kind of like that knowledge is crushing. You don't need to lock somebody up anymore who's yeah. who's crushed. You know, but at at the same time, though, think thinking about it with the idea, I I totally agree with you, Tom. About you don't have to lock up a person who has been entirely morally defeated. You know, so so this is this is the plan about the realization is is basically the spiritual lobotomy as opposed to the physical lobotomy. You know, and 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 uh, so we we wind up setting him off but why would you send him so if if you're concerned about procreation of the species why would you why would you send them off with a companion that they can breed you know and and granted the thought maybe in the forbidden zone from from dr zayas's exploration of it there there was no food or was no source of of i mean obviously there's just salt salt water out there too so so there's not even a freshwater source so the assumption is the horse is probably going to die they can probably survive on the horse for a little bit and then eventually they're they're, they're gonna they're gonna perish as as well but it, it it is a really interesting thing about why they would send why they would allow him to take her other than moving the plot along in terms of uh, of having you know the the the, the hero um, who also is is the rescuer of the damsel in distress you know <laughs> that's why when we were using the term destiny, the way I looked at it is Dr. Zayas must have thought they were going to their demise because otherwise with that, with that phrase, I just read you from the sacred scrolls. You don't want to let these things procreate these humans. They're going to take over. So that's why I felt like he really thought that they were done for yeah. if he sent them because agreed. Why would you set the parameters yeah. for your, your, for your own demise? Oh, exactly. Well, and, and it's, it's really a similar thing, ironically, when you think about Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, to like when you look at it with, with the idea of Moses kills the, the, the slave uh, driver, you know, so he kills the slave driver and he flees into the desert and, and no one chases after him, you know, so the idea that he flees into the desert anticipating, well, you know what, that, that's the end of Moses. And lo and behold, he winds up being able to, to, um, obviously thrive and, and meets his wife and blah, 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 blah. But, but the, but the idea that that's, 
also a key aspect of the hero's journey as well, Mo moving beyond. He's, he's not accepted by the, the society at the time, so he goes on a quest, you know, and, and it's what he brings back that usually is initially shunned by the society that he brings it back to. But at, at the same time, that, that's the embarking on the quest of self-discovery. And maybe that's, that's what it is, is, is that this represents the entire break of science and religion where they're one and the same. He represents that, that break moving forward. Now, I was just going to say, I also believe that's when he said that same famous quote, it's a madhouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's a madhouse. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would say that um, I think the movie, being a, a '60s movie, um, is suspicious of this that that kind of enlightenment idea, right? That the break of science. I, you know, I said this before that the break of science and religion is a, a positive one, and that we through our uh, kind of secular humanism can find a better world. I think the movie is entirely suspicious of that. And I think that that's what the ending is. And what you're, you're it seems like what you're drawing on is that, that kind of uh, Joseph Campbell thing, the mm -hmm. monomyth Very much idea. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah, which is, the, you know, the hero goes out, the hero initially rejects the, the call to, to adventure, he or she then takes on the call of adventure, brings back something and is fundamentally changed by that. But in, in so doing, kind of um, fixes a problem, repairs a society, and, and what have you. Uh, the, and, and that is this great meta-narrative. I mean, it pops up. It's biblical, as you mentioned. It's, mm -hmm. it's in Gilgamesh, for God's sakes. You know, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pre-Bible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pre-Bible. Um, but here, and I think this is part and parcel of, of the 60s and, and 70s philosophical thought, is a conscious attempt to reject that narrative and all meta-narrative um be it the meta-narrative of the nation state which we get at the beginning and the end it's the meta-narrative of the hero the hero who can go out who can um redeem us through his actions and redeem himself there is no redemption at the end of at the end of this picture and i think that's ultimately why he pounds sand at the end it, it, it is um it is having to live with that final extermination of the idea of the self. KJ, you, you've done it again. Uh, these were some great questions. And uh, uh, Pat, I, I want to congratulate you for winning. Uh, we have to stop inviting guests because they seem to be winning every episode so far. So uh, again, <laughs> thanks for joining us for the questions. And we're going to take a quick break and come back for our famous movie rant. I know what you're thinking. I hate my cat. Damn bugger does nothing but drink water, eat weird tasteless pellets, and meow like a freaking maniac. Why don't you get a job, you scream, or at least some self-respect. I mean, you crawl around on the floor like a damn animal. That's why we here at Splice Craze Lab have developed the brand new Upright Cat. Roughly the size of a normal tabby, the Upright Cat paces the floorboards with dignity, poise, and most importantly, two legs. You'll love the stately mien this animal possesses as she sits down to dinner with you and your family instead of rolling around on the carpet like an idiot, or taking a relaxing stroll in the park instead of hissing at dogs like a rabid geriatric. 
And just imagine how vogue she'll be with two free paws to style that kitty coiffer. My goodness, won't you be proud? That's Upright Cat. Hey, Cat, act like a man. And we're back for our famous movie rant. I know we talked a lot about this movie within those questions, but I'm sure there's still some things we'd like to rant about. It's time for Movie Rant. So I definitely have a, a bit of a rant to, to do. It's, 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 not, it's not a negative rant. It's, it's just one about human optimism and the idea of, of where, we, where we're going to wind, wind up. And I was talking with KJ about this too, about the parallels between Back to the Future 2 and Planet of the Apes. And, and, and here's what it is, is that when the movie starts off and Charlton Heston, we see him in, in the spacecraft. And the date reads July 14th, 1968, right? So, oh no, July 14th, 1972. So, so we, we're, it, it's not 68, it's 72. So we're four years from the making of the movie into the future on an interstellar ship traveling at the speed of light. So the idea that in 1968, we hadn't even gotten to the moon yet, yet four years later, we've, we, we've, we've figured out a way to not only put on interstellar travel, but travel at the speed of light, which is just fantastic. So the idea in four years, now when you look at that, the reason that I used a parallel to Back to the Future 2 is, you know, 1985 to 2015, we're looking at 30 years associated with that going, you know, okay, in 30 years, maybe we'll get to the future. We'll have flying cars. We'll, we'll have, you know, dehydrated food that we can hydrate in three seconds to make a full pizza, all, all these diff, diff, different things. But it, it, it always seems to be that somewhere in the fairly near future, we're going to have all of these incredible advances. So from 1968 to 1972, traveling interstellarly at the speed of light, being able to do all of these different things. That, that's, the, that's the thing about it that we, we can laugh about it, like, oh, that's just science fiction. But I really do think that it represents that sense of optimism that we have for our species about we are capable of doing in, incredibly advanced things. And then and the following year, we, we put a person on the moon or two, two people on the, on the moon. You know, so so the, that thought of the endless possibilities of the human imagination coming out in this mo- movie was really good. The the other part about that that is is funny is Stuart. So the woman on the on the on the spaceship, the <laughs> the, the idea that um, it's three men and a and a woman who are going into the future and saying that. Apparently, she wound up dying from an from an airlock breach, right? So, oh, we, we we're traveling at the speed of light. <laughs> we have an airlock breach. We've traveled two thousand years into the future, and yeah, so yeah, she she's gone. So, moving on. Here's our new plot that 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 we have. Why why was it that that she was even part of the plot to begin with? And I'm not sure if that was in the book. Or if there was some something else that that was going on, but I I I just wonder what her purpose served, other than the idea that she would be she would be the new Eve, right? So was it then the idea that 
maybe she didn't want to be the new Eve. Maybe it was a purposeful breach of, of the air. I don't want to. I don't want to spend the rest of my life meeting with, with you three idiots. So <laughs> the idea, I'm out of here. Yeah, I, I do think that was interesting how they just kind of gloss over that. I think they were trying to say that Langdon may have had interest with her, if I'm correct. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, that's right. I think they did allude to that. So I don't know if they were officially a couple or if he was just, you know, into her. <laughs> but but that's the only thing there. But you're right. They kind of they do kind of a, a gloss over over that fact. But it is kind of funny that they have all these advancements in, in technology and, and someone left the window open a crack and then she's gone, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose with her, what we get is... Um, Langdon's saying, you're, to Charlton Heston's character, Taylor, you're awfully cold about it. And we get his personality emerge out of that, that conversation. It's, well, she's been dead for over a year, a little late for a funeral. <laughs> I think it was more than a year. I think it was like a lot of years. Yeah, I think in Earth, <laughs> Earth time, it's a lot of years. In their time, it might have been a year. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whatever. I mean, I mean, but still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I do think we get that kind of, um, uh, uh, there should be this kind of concern for other people. And, um, you know, there, he should have a better concern for other people, and he doesn't. You know, there's something much more callous about him. You have that classic ethos, pathos, lothos trio going on here, where Taylor is the ethos, the guy getting stuff done and moving. Landon is kind of the emotional guy looking at things, um, you know, from... Dr. Bones's perspective, and then Dodge is the scientist, and he's just here to understand this better. You have the Spock perspective there. Mm -hmm. So I think you guys are spot on with their relationship to um, Stuart kind of represents the end of the future, right? It, it puts a nail in the coffin on the human race from their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talking about relationships, one of the things I wanted to make sure I, I brought up in the conversation was not the human interactions, but the interactions within the ape society. And specifically, there is a hierarchy. They pose it at first as if it is a utopia and that the apes have evolved to find this perfect society. But it doesn't take long for us to see that not all the apes are treated equal. So, for example, the orangutan level tends to be the wisest and the ones who are the ruling bodies. The gorilla group seems to be the enforcers. And some of the more, I don't want to say manual laborers, one of the people was the, the care, uh, caretaker in the jail. And then the chimps are actually at the lower tier. And they're almost, there's a bias against the two chimps that are the major players in this film because they have these outlandish ideas and they're trying to get into science which is kind of uh, conflicting with where the orangutans usually sit in society. So it's interesting to see that even though they think they are this perfect society, they are completely biased as well. And I, I need to mention, or else my wife will probably be rather upset, um, the great apes were mostly represented in this movie. Like you said, Nick, you had the chimpanzees, the gorillas, and the orangutans, and of course, Taylor as a human. The only of the five great apes that were not represented in this movie were the bonobos, um, but there is a bonobo in one of the James Franco Planet of the Apes. So I just wanted to shout out to the great apes. Well, I'm glad we, bonobos got their due at some point. Yeah, in, in the book, the, the details are a little more specific. Orangutans are considered, I believe, 
the upper echelon. They're kind of considered the the uh, whatever you might call it, the, the Europeans of the uh, of the group. And I think chimps are considered a, of a lower order. Um, and so they do have a. It's not a really a perfect society, but it is. It's a, a class based society still. You know, it's like any any other society. They have these kind of specific hierarchies, um, which also reflects on how they dress. The orangutans, um, the you know, the superior wise ones dress in orange. Everybody else kind of dresses in green. You know, that type of thing. So going back to what you're saying before, Pat, about the optimism of the future, I also think it's kind of funny. In the '80s, everybody was optimistic. We're going to have flying cars. We're going to have all these things. In the '70s, when they looked at the future, it's a desert planet with somebody else in control like it's terrible this is a horrible future we're moving towards <laughs> mad max yeah yeah well it, it's it's interesting KJ, you should say that because it, it relates to some of our prior and upcoming movies that we're uh, have on the schedule because the warriors which we talked about earlier definitely has that dark dreary uh and that was more in the 70s and then uh Pat, I'm glad you brought up Back to the Future 2. That trilogy will be later in our schedule this year. So I'm sure we're going to be talking more about uh, their depictions of the future then. But it is funny to see these movies have certain feelings depending on when they were released. Yeah. yeah, The the 70s generally is, uh, in terms of movies, until you hit Jaws, so like late 60s into 70s, is pretty pessimistic. Um, In part, I think that's a response to the, the films before so this kind of second golden age of Hollywood begins with Easy Rider, which ends on society kind of killing off our heroes, right? They just sort of die randomly. They don't even die sensibly. Uh, and, and that kind of continues until Jaws when, you know, you can make an exciting action movie and everybody goes to it. Um, but it, that seems to be part of this, this frame is that, is, is the response to older films where things were positive, things were like the 50s. Um, you know, it was, uh, we were not fighting Nazis anymore. Uh, but now we have this kind of the, the, uh, the sexual revolution, the Vietnam War, and these different um, things pop up in the, the kind of baby boomer mind. And once these, these artists are able to kind of take over the cameras in Hollywood, that's just the feel of everything. And so even science fiction is going to be filtered through that, that, that perspective. One of the things um, that I found interesting about the Planet of the Apes in general is how popular they were. So even in the show Mad Men, his daughter is very excited to go see Planet of the Apes. Everybody's excited. Let's go see Planet of the Apes. Have you seen Planet of the Apes? And I was trying to think of a more modern movie that is in a similar situation. And I think the Marvel movies may be our current day Planet of the Apes, possibly. And I wonder what will the original Iron Man movie look like in 2060 when we're 50 years out? Are we going to look at it the same way we look at these Planet of the Apes movies where it's like the costumes are a little, uh, the special effects are a little, it, it's, it's a really fun movie, but is it top-notch cinema or are, are the Marvel movies going to have the same stigma as Planet of the Apes? Are they going to have all the same pop culture references? Is it going to infiltrate society the same way the Planet of the Apes did? Well, I'm sure we'll uh, discuss in one of our classic reviews at that time. <laughs> well, you, you know, I, I, I think with, with Planet of, of the Apes, right at that time, thinking about the, the other movies that were coming out at that time, this, this really was the, in many ways, the movement that was similar to The Wizard of Oz introducing color. You know, and, and, I, and I think that this is this type of movie that we start to see much more of a shift towards um, social commentary 
as opposed to the escapist adventures that we'd see in the movies. That, that it, it does represent a big shift that this is why I think it, it gets embedded in pop cult culture ref references as well. And so I don't know if the Marvel movies will, will necessarily take on the same am amount because they seem to be in the midstream of, of the hero as opposed to the starting point. And, and oftentimes we wind up having the starting point once the things that change the face of, we have like Jaws is a, is a great example of that too, that, that, rep that represents this new form of, of horror and excitement and comedy, everything built in. Um, into one movie, which was brilliant, but it, it, this type of movie represents truly a paradigm shift. It's also interesting, Pat, what you brought up about technology and how we view technology and how we kind of, um, how we think of what the future is going to be. And especially the, you know, be it positive or negative, um, it's always wrong, right? <laughs> uh, you know, that in like the four years we'll have flying cars and it's kind of like, um, you know, what we have is the internet, which seems to me far more remarkable than flying cars or, or whatever it is. Maybe not more remarkable than light speed travel. Yeah, I, I think trying to look at movies and um, look at how movies predict what technology is going to be. Um, it, it's always fun. And it also makes you realize how hard it is to plan a society. Like, you, if, you know, group, group, a group of very intelligent filmmakers want to see what kind of technology is going to be out there and they're, they're free to come up with it. And it's always wrong. It always comes up in ways that are, are unpredicted and unprecedented, um, which, you know, in Back to the Future 2, I think is very celebratory. Um, and I think in this movie, it's, it's the fear, you know, it's, it's what turns your hair white. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I think that that, that, that gets to, to the point of, of uh, looking at the time, what the momentum is, that if we stay as a society on a linear tra tra trajectory, this is where we're going to wind, wind, wind up with. You know, where, yeah. where um, you know, with the Vietnam War and the Cold War going on at the, at the same time, such resistance towards war from the nation, yet, you know, in many ways we're staying on there. The, the, the uncertainty associated with the standoff, the, between the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. post post um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, only five years before that, the, the assassination of Kennedy, all, all of these things that that take place on that linear tra trajectory into the future, which is really interesting about that. But then only in 20 years that that view changes, you know, from from Spielberg's men mentality in terms of saying we're, we're, we're going to introduce a new future, one that has its problems, uh, but one that is, is much more suited to making life easier for us as opposed to harder. Yeah, I, I, I think the, um, yeah, because no time period is one thing, right? I, I mean, you have a, a collection of, of movies. You, it's not, everybody's not going to be pessimistic. And I think Spielberg is, is an example of someone who, um, in a, in a certain way is a little more honest than I think the makers of Planet of the Apes is in the sense that he loves technology. He wants to kind of celebrate it, um, be it in, uh, like you're saying, in Jaws, uh, technology being the means to creating this, this the, the blockbuster, or in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where technology is itself observed as something beautiful. I mean, the spaceships in, in, in that film, it's all about kind of 
lifting off and getting to a, a higher plane. It's kind of beautiful what, what those spaceships can do, how they look, how they communicate. Uh, and, and those are always and everywhere. I think even, even today when we're, you know, post Cold War and, and all that stuff, um, there's always the, the kind of the, the optimist versus the Luddite, right? Uh, and, and that I think is probably more fevered in, in the Cold War when um, the Luddite is, point, is able to point at the nuclear bomb and go, you know, yeah. <laughs> look out. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you sure you don't want to break the loom? You know, you know. Uh, but it, it's still, it's still the, a tension in, especially in science fiction today. Well, guys, I, I think this was another fun movie and fun discussion. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, Pat. Pat, would you like to do a celebratory buzzer for us? Oh, hang on a second. Let me, <laughs> let me call up my buzzer. It's, uh... <laughs> Thanks again, Pat, for joining us today. We hope oh. it was a useful use of your time. Well, I've had an absolutely wonderful time with the three of you. It's so wonderful to be able to sit and talk with you and especially talk about movies that we love. I really had a wonderful time. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks so much for joining us again. I'd also like to thank our audacious editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. As a bonus, for those of you who haven't fully satiated your appetite for Planet of the Apes knowledge, check out the Planet of the Apes B-side episode also on our YouTube channel. Join us next time when we discuss Tom's recommendation from 2014, Ex Machina. I'm sure it'll be a fun one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.